0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Space News Roundup, this for the week of the 9th to 15th of August 2021. And what a week it was. Before getting started, a special shout out to our good friends at GoTikonauts and Spacewatch.global, two excellent sources of space industry news. This week we saw several major pieces of news in the sector, and as a result, we have made the decision to film a special two-part episode. In this part one, we discuss lunar landers, in-flight connectivity, an amazing SAR story from a Dongfang Hour fan. But first, Jean will give us a breakdown of arguably this week's most exciting piece of news, a funding round for hypersonic vehicle company, Space Transportation.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome you aboard the Dongfang Hour. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. 谢谢 6点 25分左右到达
0: John, hypersonic vehicles sounds like it is right up your alley. What's going on with space transportation?
1: So this week, we saw Chinese hypersonic spacecraft and rocket company Space Transportation announce a whopping 300 million RMB Series A uh, funding round, and that was on August uh, the 9th. Now, before I let Blaine get into the details on who those investors were behind this round of funding, I want to talk a little bit about this the very nature of space transportation and the nature of their range of products, which seems to have evolved Quite a bit over uh, the past couple of months. So space transportation is a Beijing based company founded in August 2018 and was known up to now as basically an aspiring suborbital and orbital rocket manufacturer. Just one among the 15 to 20 plus commercial rocket companies that have been set up over the past six to seven years um, in China. And it's not necessarily the most well funded, the most high profile, the most Advanced, But it does stand out regarding one fact, and that's its technology choices regarding reusability. And this is namely exploiting lift generated by a lifting surface. And this is really an absolute contradiction with uh, the general belief here in the Chinese space industry that reusability must be achieved with a SpaceX Falcon 9 style vertical takeoff, vertical landing. The CEO behind this company is called Wang Yudong. He's a Tsinghua University graduate who also has a long experience at Calt, including positions as chief designer and director. So Calt being the Chinese Academy of Launch Technology. And recently, we've seen space uh, plane activities on both sides of the Pacific really gain more uh, attention. And this is probably due to the potential dual-use nature of this technology. Um, regarding space transportation, the company came into the spotlight nobly over the past two, three years because it performed a number of suborbital tests with um, clear lifting surfaces that were visible on well in the pictures of their spacecraft. And this was notably two suborbital launches of uh, the so-called Tianxing-1 rocket. There was the first one in April 2019 um, of the Tianxing-1 rocket, and this was in collaboration with Xiamen University. And again, there was another launch in December 2019. Now let's take a closer look at space transportation's aspiring family of products, uh, the changing rockets, which have, as mentioned, changed quite a bit over time. We know that space transportation is, or at least has been, at some point keen on four types of products. There's uh, suborbital hypersonic test vehicles, there's orbital launch vehicles, there's uh, point-to-point space transportation, and there's suborbital space tourism. Now let's break these down um, and see which ones space transportation will actually develop in the future. Let's start with suborbital hypersonic test vehicle. So this product will 100% be in space transportations product portfolio for the very simple reason that space, I mean, the Tianxing 1 is exactly that. It's a hypersonic test vehicle. And we also know that um, space transportation is developing the Tianxing 2, also a hypersonic uh, test vehicle. And the idea behind um, these type of vehicles is to, you know, to have a suborbital spacecraft that speeds up sufficiently to high Mach numbers typically beyond Mach 5, to enable various customers to test their payloads and their systems at these hypersonic speeds. And this may seem probably like an expensive way to test your systems because, I mean, normally aerodynamicists, they prefer to use wind tunnels because it's just much less costly. But the issue that you have with high Mach numbers is as the Mach number increases, it becomes harder and harder to build a wind tunnel and becomes more and more expensive. And beyond certain, um, mock regimes, uh, basically you have to rely on different technologies, such as expansion or shock tunnels. So I think that it is possible in these extreme conditions that, well, testing directly on a hypersonic test bed, like the Tianqing one or Tianqing two could be interesting and attractive in terms of, um, you know, reducing the complexity also in increasing the, the level of realism and even in terms of cost. I mean, potentially if, uh, space transportation is able to bring the cost of the Tianqing 1 down sufficiently through usability and using just less expensive components, as they've said, or, uh, you know, and, and when you compare that to the very high cost of those, uh, highly hypersonic uh, wind tunnels, um, well, you know, maybe there is a business case for the Tianqing 1 and Tianqing 2. Um, discussing the second product now of space transportation, at least one that they aspire or aspire to create, it's orbital launch vehicles. And by orbital launch vehicle, I mean, basically rockets that can put a payload into orbit and give it sufficient Delta V so that rocket, I mean, the payload, sorry, can remain in orbit. Um, so this would potentially be something called the Tianqing 3. And we've seen mock-ups on previous space transportation marketing material showing a two-stage rocket where we see a first-stage space plane, which would carry what looks like a solid-fueled second stage. And the first stage would be able to glide back and land on Earth leveraging reusability as a way to lower costs. Unfortunately for space plane fans uh, in the diagram that was showed in this week's WeChat post, uh, we don't see this um, orbital launch vehicle on their roadmap anymore, so it is likely it is possible that this was scrapped. The third product on their roadmap, uh, I mean that they could that they were at, at some point interested and they are actually interested in making is point to point, space transportation. Point-to-point space transportation is um, is the idea of sending people or cargo across the globe in a rocket, which could cut down long-distance travel by a factor of 10 to 15. And most people are probably familiar with this idea coming from SpaceX's ambition to do this exactly this with Starship. And they released a fancy video in this regard that was published in 2017, and which gave an idea of what that would look like. The idea actually of point to point space transportation is much older than that. We can probably go all the way back to the 1940s. There were engineers like, um, Eugen Zanger, who's, um, who was Austrian, I believe. And you can also discuss Chen who's the father of uh, Chinese space. And he also discussed already back in the days in the late 1940s, point to point space transportation. And back in the days, I think he was working at uh, Caltech. So he was still in the U.S. Um, now, regarding space transportation solution, we actually don't have anything tangible. There's not much information released. And that's probably because the project is extremely early stage. But we know that their CEO, Wang Yudong, has discussed it at length at a keynote presentation in 2019, and that he's very bullish on this technology. And last but not least, we have space tourism, which is something the fourth basically a product line that, you know, space transportation could be interested in developing. Um, and we've seen, I mean, it's really been a constant uh, since the beginning. We've seen various mock-ups of space tourism spacecraft on their presentations. So how likely is any of this to materialize? If I was to do a little bit of speculation here, I would say that um, hypersonic test spacecraft for sure, it's already part of, um, space transportation's value proposition today with the Tianqing 1 and also the, in the future, the Tianqing 2 that's currently under development. Orbital launch vehicles, as mentioned, um, it's, it seems that it's been scrapped, although I'm not 100% sure. And it's a, it's a pity because it looks like probably the most mainstream activity that space transportation had compared to the other three, which are you now a bit more, uh, funky, let's say. On the third one, point-to-point space transportation, I must admit that I'm not sold uh, due to the safety issues and probably the very sophisticated propulsion technology that space transportation will have to develop in order to achieve this. Um, But again, Wang Yudong, the CEO, is very bullish on this uh, market and this technology. And the last one, space tourism, I must admit I'm not sold either because um, there's the question of, is there a market actually for this in China? Um, And we're currently in a political context where the very rich tend to lay low. So not po- possibly not great clients for this sort of activity. And second point is that, you know, Blue Origin in uh, Virgin Galactic, these were companies that were funded by billionaires and they spent literally 15 years to put together, um, you know, and to achieve the success that they had earlier this year, um, with their various systems and, and rockets. So I'm a bit, um, skeptical on space tourism here as well, but. Let's remind ourselves that space transportation is still a very young company. They seem to be ra- raising good money. And so we'll have to wait and see. But I, I do feel that at some point when you're a commercial company, it's the market that is going to drive your business decisions. Um, so Blaine, any, any thoughts on this, uh, this funky company, space transportation?
0: You covered it well, John, and I even learned a new word, aerodynamicists. Uh, and indeed, what a very appropriate, although perhaps not so creative name for a space transportation company, that being space transportation. Uh, so a couple points from my side to add on the commercial and financial side of things. So first, I would note that there's a really interesting 2019 interview with the aforementioned CEO Wang Yudong, where he mentioned that the cost of a flight on a Tianxing one would be not more than 5 million RMB, which is to say around 800,000 US dollars. Not cheap, but also probably a lot cheaper than building an expansion tunnel and indeed probably cheaper than a two bedroom apartment in urban Beijing or Shanghai. In the same interview, Wang noted that the Tianxing-1 could be reused at least three to four times and that the cost for a Tianxing-1 can be recovered after only two launches, indicating that the apparent manufacturing cost of of the vehicle is about 10 million RMB or less, or roughly two Shanghai apartments. There is apparently demand for the services, with the company having announced in 2019 that there were four customers on board its two test flights at that time. A couple of small additional points on the company before diving into this funding round. Yet another excellent 2019 interview, which tells a story of the founding of the company and describes the CEO Wang having left his previous job at Kelt and then claimed to have designed the Tianxing one on paper in about two months. Although frankly, due to the enormous complexities involved with developing such a vehicle, we find it unlikely that any one person could design one to any significant degree of completion in two months. Soon after, Wang met Li Liang, a former cask engineer, who told him that he could turn this paper Tianxing into reality in three months. Again, it's a tough sell, but it makes a very good story, and I have no proof of anything otherwise. I recommend checking out that interview. Li also noted in the interview that in the traditional space companies where he had previously worked, the same tasks were measured in years as opposed to months, and also that in the traditional space program, as an example, certain sensors had fixed suppliers and the costs, the parts cost in the range of 20,000 RMB, whereas you could buy comparable sensors on Taobao for a few dozen RMB. So not only a slightly better deal, but a great example of the scrappiness and resourcefulness of Chinese commercial launch companies and Chinese commercial space in general also a good example of the magic of Taobao. It is perhaps no wonder that a flight on the Tianxing-1 can be procured for the low, low cost of one urban Shanghai apartment. Back to the current funding round, this funding round was led by Matrix Partners China and the Shanghai Guosheng Investment Fund. In a press release, the lead investor Matrix Partners noted that, quote, the product of space transportation is high speed aircraft. Imagine flying from the Eastern hemisphere to the Western hemisphere in less than two hours. This may be the next generation of aircraft, end quote. As John mentioned earlier, this may or may not be realistic, but indeed a very bold statement. Note that noted that they plan to conduct technology verification testing until 2022, achieve a suborbital space tourism prototype in 2023, conduct their first manned test flight of a suborbital space tourism vehicle in 2025. They also plan for their first, quote, global hypersonic vehicle flight in 2028, and then the first full-scale global global hypersonic vehicle flight in 2030. So overall, definitely a big update from space transportation and for China's hypersonic vehicle sector more generally. The company has moved very quickly thus far and appears to have pulled together an interesting founding team with a lot of entrepreneurial drive and also some street smarts to round things out. Uh, so very much looking forward to seeing what comes next from space transportation in these coming years. And John, unless you have anything else to add, shall we move into the lunar lander announcement?
1: Absolutely. Let's move on to the lunar lander. So um, recently, a Chinese local space media called Diem von pointed out something very interesting, uh, which was uh, a publication that was released by the School of Aeronautics and Astronautics of Xiamen University on July the 5th. So I Dates, uh, back quite a bit. And basically that post back in the day, um, discussed uh, the visit of a high level delegation from CAST, which on paper looks, you know, unremarkable. But there was one very interesting point about this post is that the post refers nominatively to the visitors as high profile Chinese lunar lander project leadership. And namely, we had um apparently Yang Lei, the chief commander of the crewed lunar spacecraft. We had Li Yin, the deputy chief commander of the lunar module of the crewed lunar spacecraft. And we had Fan Songtao, the deputy chief designer of China's next generation crude vehicle. And this story is of interest because the latter is one of the last missing pieces of China's crude um, lunar projects. So far, most of our knowledge covers other things like um, the overall roadmap. We have, for example, the ILRS, which was unveiled this year. So ILRS stands for International Lunar research station and which would have three distinctive phases, the reconnaissance, the construction and the utilization phases spread over basically 15 years between 2021 and 2036 plus. And we also know that potentially China could attempt crewed lunar missions outside of the context of the ILRS. We also know all about China's lunar rockets, notably the Long March 5 DY and the super heavy Long March 9, which will likely both be uh, human rated and be able to launch taikonauts into translunar injection. Finally, we have the deep space capable crude capsule. So far, uh, it's called the Next Generation Crude Vehicle, Xi Tai Tsai Renfei Let's just call it NGCV for short. Um, the NGCV basically is an Orion equivalent and it'll be capable of carrying a crew of up to six to seven Tychonauts. And so far, a small scale prototype and a full scale prototype were launched uh, respectively in 2016 and 2020. But we were missing really the essential piece of information on this lunar, lunar project, which was the lander and the ascent vehicle, which has the role during the, um, you know, the, the, during the mission to take the Tychonauts down from lunar orbit onto the lunar surface and to take them back from the lunar surface onto, um, back, uh, back into orbit. Um, and the first hint I believe that we had of China working on the lunar lander uh, was April thirteenth, 2018, where Zhou Jinping, who basically spearheads the Chinese uh, crewed space program, he announced a competition requesting proposals for a lunar lander architecture, and full details are still today available on uh, the CMSEO website. So CMSEO being the Chinese Manned um, Space Engineering Office. And we also had a couple additional hints um, at the China Space Conference in September 2020, where some details were shown on a lunar lander proposal, as well as um, things like a lunar surface vehicle and lunar spacesuits. So while the lunar lander is not yet entirely official, it's undoubtedly there. We know that the Chinese are working on it. It's under development, which means that potentially could be revealed in the coming years or even the coming months. And my personal guess is maybe China Space Day 2022. So that would be in April 2022.
0: We should make a bet on uh, which city will host the 2022 China Space Day. And if I were to guess, I would uh, my money would be on either Tianjin or Guangzhou, though that's admittedly quite speculative. I'm also very jealous of the cast crew to have been able to make the trip to Xiamen. I can only hope they took some time to check out Gulangyu and also had some Sha Tamian. Uh Last admin points, so I would recommend checking out the Dongfang Hour episode 39 for more information on John's aforementioned Long March 5DY. Getting back to this announcement, only a couple of very small points from my side on the lunar lander. First, I think it's interesting to note that the Chinese lunar plans, at least up until now, seem to be aiming for a mission directly to the lunar surface, as opposed to the Artemis program's gateway lunar station. That being said, we did see in a presentation at the 2020 China Space Conference in Fuzhou that uh, there was a, a noted a, quote, lunar orbital space station question mark, as though to say that China is considering an orbital station, but has not yet confirmed it. Second point is that this is but the latest instance of Xiamen University popping up in the space sector. The university has been pretty active in recent months, with the Haisa one and Haisa 2 SAR EO satellites having been launched in December 2020 and June 2021, respectively. These two EO satellites appear to be part of a larger constellation, which has a maritime silk road component to it, with HISA likely referring to the, or the 21st century maritime silk road. Finally, Xiamen University was also involved in the aforementioned April 2019 test flight of the Tianxing-1 with space transportation. So definitely interesting stuff, and a big thanks to the Enfang Gaudi for pointing this out. And I would mention that Enfang Gaudi is an excellent account to follow. Moving into our last major piece of news for episode one, we have a couple of updates from in-flight connectivity and, and, and entertainment. The first one, China Eastern Airlines, has begun live TV broadcast in-flight with its partner Panasonic Avionics. The airline is going to begin rolling out live TV on its wide-body fleet of Airbus A330s and A350s, as well as Boeing 777s and 787s, and it will include content from CCTV and CGTN. And again, the IFC service provider there is Panasonic Avionics. The addition of live broadcasts on these flights is made possible partly by the bringing into service of the AppStar 6D satellite, a KU-band high-throughput satellite with considerably more capacity than any other Chinese-owned satellite in orbit today at around 50 gigabits per second. In related news, we also saw Panasonic Avionics launch what the company calls the world's first full-cabin 4K in-flight entertainment system with Cathay Pacific, a Hong Kong airline, on the airline's Airbus A321 Neo fleet. Interestingly, the technology will also be Bluetooth enabled, which means that passengers can watch the 4K content using their own Bluetooth enabled headsets, which must be a win for sanitation in this age of COVID-19. The cafe offering will involve 11.6 inch screens in economy and 15.6 inch screens in business class. Notably, I would imagine that Cathay is arguably the hardest hit airline in the world during the COVID-19 pandemic, with Hong Kong having precisely zero domestic flights, and with international travel down literally 99% from pre-COVID levels, a trend that remains in place to this day. Now whether 4K flights with Bluetooth-enabled sound will help the airline rebound is anyone's guess, but probably open borders would be required in order for that to have any chance of happening. So Overall, a couple of very interesting developments. I would say more so the China Eastern one in the sense that in-flight connectivity and entertainment in mainland China tends to be less straightforward than it would be in Hong Kong or elsewhere. IFC in China remains badly underdeveloped with aircraft penetration rate of around 5%. This compared to I think 50 to 70% or so in North America, vastly higher at any rate. And this low penetration rate is due to several factors. So namely regulatory roadblocks, insufficient satellite capacity to make a decent business case, and also very conservative state-owned airlines. So for example, I do recall a 2019 interview at the EuroConsult World Satellite Business Week with Air China executive Churjer Hong, where he mentioned that the airline is considering IFC for their North America routes in five years, which gives an idea of the speed of decision making at these airlines. That being said, all of these factors are starting to change. Regulations around in-flight connectivity have become quite a bit clearer. New capacity is entering the market in the form of the aforementioned AppStar Six D. And moving forward, we're going to see state-owned satellite operator China Satcom launch three high-throughput satellites across Eurasia and Pacific, all of which will have a significant IFC angle, and we'll put up some coverage maps of those satellites on the video version of this podcast. At the same time, we also have domestic equipment manufacturers and integrators in China starting to advance their technology to the point of being able to serve airlines, which is certainly an important factor in a country that is emphasizing technological self-sufficiency. All of this is to say, moving forward, we should probably expect to see more Chinese airlines announcing plans for in-flight connectivity and in-flight entertainment. Uh, so, Jean, unless you have anything else to add on IFC, shall we move into the excellent SAR comments from one of
1: our fans? Absolutely. Um, I want to give a special thanks to the author of one of those comments on our uh, video last week on the competition between commercial SAR projects in China, SAR being a synthetic aperture radar. So the person in question uh, was, well, is named here on YouTube, W.B. Young, and he discusses. so he's Chinese, and he discusses how back in the day, in the 1980s, his university professor began working on one of China's earliest, um, SAR designs as a side project. Apparently back in the day it was uh, quite, you know, common to see professors working on side projects. And his work ga- gained the attention of the government and obtained uh, several thousand US dollars of subsidies to develop a technology verification demonstrator. And that was probably quite a sum, um, back in the day. The university in question was East. China University of Science and Technology. And in the end the project included a collaboration with the 14th Institute of uh, for their radar. So 14th Institute probably refers to an institute of what would have been a predecessor to CTC or uh, cast, uh, which are the you know the modern names. And the demonstrator that they did was then attached to and tested beneath the wing of a Nacene 14 aircraft. So unfortunately, we don't have any photos of, of this. I'm not sure that cameras were that accessible in the day, but it's abso- absolutely great to have such insights because it's really, um, things that you don't read on the internet or that are very, high, very hard to find in history books. So, um, really thanks a lot, uh, W.B. Young, uh, for sharing that. And hopefully we'll see, um, future comments that can bring additional insights on how, um, you know, how China's early space program in, various space technologies saw saw the day a couple of decades ago.
0: Indeed. Feitang Garcia to W.B. Young. That was a really interesting uh, anecdote. And indeed, I can only imagine how far several thousand U.S. dollars of subsidies would get you in China back in the 1980s. So that being said, this is the end of episode one of the Dongfang Hour Space News Roundup for the week of the 9th to 15th of August. Stick around for episode two, where we will discuss China's new shepherd, among other things. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host, Jean DeVille, and we will see you on the next episode.
1: Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week or in the next episode.